Welcome to Season 7 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. It's wonderful to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding our episodes useful. So please take the time to subscribe, share the episodes and leave some feedback. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal speaking people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording. I pay respects to the elders past and present of the Darawal Nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people that are listening to this. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Russell Cayley is the Managing Director and Architect of the Think Learning Studio, TLS. The Think Learning Studio emerged from Think Global School, the world's first travelling high school. The studio's mission and vision are to partner with teachers, school leaders, schools, educational foundations and other future of learning collaborators to disrupt global academic curriculum and personal development. It was a wonderfully diverse conversation with Russell. We talked about so many things. I hope that you get as much out of this episode as I did. Russell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Where are you phoning in from? Thanks for having me, Matthew. Oh, I'm phoning in from Dubai, downtown Dubai. So, um, yeah, usual good weather and um, yeah, yeah, good good things happening here regarding education and everything we're going to talk about today. So, yeah, excited to get into it. Nice, fantastic. So it's obviously the beginning of the day uh, for you. You've got a busy day planned? Busy day, yes. We're actually doing some um, work with or a few meetings with some quite interesting people in and in around Dubai, some visionaries, futurists. So um, really exciting for the studio to, uh, to be getting involved in those sort of things in Dubai, because it, it takes you out of the scope of just education. You hear the arguments around the economy, the media, you know, it's, you, you get out of that bubble a little bit, which yeah. is nice. And yeah, just really excited watching the growth here in the UAE. Obviously a lot of schools, as your audience will probably be aware, a lot of schools opening here. Yeah, fantastic. And um, I, I think there's a there's a pull to try. It's not quite happening yet, but there's a pull of, I think, schools um, marketing and the taglines are beginning to sound a, a little different. Yeah. So hearing a lot about student voice and student choice and dynamic curriculum, um, I hope that happens in, in reality. We'll see. But it's it's an exciting place to be in terms of education right now. Fantastic. And we will definitely spend some time unpacking the amazing work uh, that you're involved in, but quite possibly the most important question now, what's your coffee order? Oh, my coffee order, cappuccino. That's the, that's my, that's my go-to. And what's the, uh, what's the coffee uh, culture like where you are up and coming? Oh, it's, bo- it's booming. It's booming. If you go, you just do um, a walk around in Dubai mall right now, you, you will see all types of new coffee shops and that's not just um, Caribo or Starbucks, actual, actual, there's one that looks actually like a ship that's just opened in Dubai Mall. That's kind wow. of pretty cool. And then, yeah, you head down towards the beach area, ton of coffee shops. And so it, it's it's definitely that like, cafe culture living here in Dubai is, is taken off in the last few years for sure. So have uh, have hipsters made it to Dubai yet? No, you don't see the hipsters. Well, a couple, but it's not <laughs> the, um, you know, traveling the world for the last 10 years, we saw a lot of gentrification. Nowhere more, actually, than our last trip um, before the pandemic, wow. which was Panama. Wow. And that had a big gentrification, hipster movement, and it was causing quite the, um, let's say, friction between the local the locals and the wow. people moving in obviously the pandemic really put a stop to that because like every, like a lot of places um things changed but yeah so that hipster movement not quite here but um 
other places that we've traveled with the students and and myself as a traveler it's 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 there no nowhere more so i saw it so vividly than than panama wow that's really interesting um is there a book that you have read could be personally or professionally uh, that's caused you to uh, to stop and reconsider a few things in your life I love anything by John Taylor Gatto. If we're talking about education, um, I think he's just an incredible author. And as a very junior teacher back in England who didn't really question, not I didn't question, I don't think I'd formulated really the arguments against traditional education that I have now many years later in my 40s. But as an early junior teacher, when I read uh, John Taylor Gatto, I really began thinking about how we instruct young people, you know, systematic issues. And that really opened my eyes to, to, to a lot of the faults in the traditional factory model of education. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, a final get to know you question. Uh, if you could have a dinner party with anybody, uh, who would be there? Obviously your family don't count in the, uh, in, in the seat count, but who would you like to sit down and have a chat with over dinner? Could be past or present. Who would I like to sit down with? Now, as a historian, I should definitely have a better grasp of, of this question. I would say a good place to start might be, and again, I'm being very geeky and historian all about this, but you know, post-World War II, someone like Truman sitting down, I'd love to know the the thought process behind the atomic bomb. I, I did spend some time living in Hiroshima. So, you know, seeing that and, and just as a as a decision policymaker, where do you even start? To, to, you know, so I'd have a lot of questions around that. Um, God, who, who else? I'm, I'm trying to not pick the traditional. So I would say I would say Truman would be one. I mean, we've just obviously had the passing of the Queen here in England. I mean, she didn't speak much, so the idea of actually what were her thoughts on some big issues would be interesting yeah, you know because it was never you know it really for 70 years views on politics or policy was just never published innuendo sure but there was never any concrete you know what she thought what she didn't think yeah. um so yeah that uh, yes queen truman and then we usually go for three don't we so the <laughs> the third one and uh, maybe a bit similar but someone like churchill as well as, as yeah. a leader you know how do you galvanize that kind of collective spirit yeah, interesting. And uh, Russell, just going back to uh, to when you're at school, um, what were you like uh, as a student? Did you enjoy school? And also the second part of that question, uh, what are you most grateful for from your schooling? Schooling for me was it was a kind of weird paradigm. I, I grew up in a very ethnically diverse part of Manchester, England. Um, we We grew up, you know, I think fairly working class, but fairly tolerant. And, and, and it was very much a culture built in and around. I went to a boys school, so it was very much a culture built around sport. So, you know, you, you played football, you played cricket. And that's really where you bonded with your, with your, with your friend. That's where you made your friendship groups. So I, I, I think school was a very much a, a community experience for me. It was hard. It's, the, it, it's not a well-resourced school in Manchester that I went to, it was coming out of an era of a bit of tension. There was a, there was a high profile case of, of a young, of a young student being, being stabbed actually. It was in the nineties in Manchester. So it was a very high tension period and you were very young at the time. So it was like, you, you just weren't developed enough to really understand a lot of these big issues going on that, that, you know, I think are more prevalent today and more, more understood by youth and young people today. But we certainly, in the 90s didn't really grasp a lot of that um so even though it was very fairly high tension when i started high school it was definitely a community built in and around sport and camaraderie the teachers were largely the teaching was largely one of fatigue i felt you know i, I remember going in and feeling that the teachers were constantly tired exhausted um not necessarily enjoying the profession or the work, there was a feeling of, you know, how did, I, how did I end up at this school out of all the schools around Manchester? So I, I never really had, you know, I had good, I had teachers who were definitely turning up, showing up every day and doing a, doing a fine job, but I never had the experience of saying, this one teacher changed my life. That, mm -hmm. that never happened. I was a cricket player. 
Um, my father, you know, quite high level, uh, represented the Lancashire School of Excellence, represented a really good team called Droylston back in the 90s. We won a lot of things. And my dad was my coach. So my 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 father was genuinely the guy who guided me and gave me that instruction. I didn't get it at, at school at all, really. Um, I wasn't a bad student. I, I when I performed, I, I did what I needed to do. Middle, middle of the class, I would say. But didn't have that typical, this teacher changed my life experience. Yeah, okay. What was that dynamic like, um, having your father as your coach? Was that interesting? Uh, was he particularly hard <laughs> on you to show he wasn't playing favourites? Or what was that like? No, he wasn't. He was just, you know, I, I would say my, my, my dad is in his 70s now. It's just, it was just, you know, typical Northern English, hard work, works on the railways, then works on the buses, just hard working grafter who was just a good guy and uh, no he went out we were out you know frosty cold mornings you know I was a bowler so we were just practicing and he was you know he was he was great I, I couldn't have a have a bad word to say about him as, as a coach and sadly injury brought that chapter to an end for me and I moved into from a very much a sports trajectory into a into a history and a teaching trajectory so it was quite a quite a pivot from an injury I got, but no, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a good dynamic. And I was, I was very, very fortunate to have that. I have a father figure that really guided me. Um, right. Because it, it was, didn't really happen anywhere else. Like I said, we just, a lot of the lads that I grew up with in this all boys school, we didn't really get that mentoring that, that maybe others and your listeners got, got in school. Yeah. Now that's really, I, I find that fascinating. Thank you so much for your, um, for your honesty and your transparency and sharing that story. Um, I'm really curious as well, uh, Russell, how did you go from, you mentioned injury and then sort of um, moving into teaching, um, but what were some of those uh, key moments in your teaching career and how do you think you ended up in the position you are now, um, traveling the world, looking at different education systems and sort of initiating change at that level? Because it doesn't, yeah, what were some of those key moments uh, in your life, those really foundational moments that that got you to where you are today. I was at well, it started. I was in industry for a couple of years, trained for a teacher around twenty four, twenty five. So I actually just having a kind of office job, mm-hmm. and I always said it wasn't. It was no fr- thrill, no thrills or thrills. You know, it was, but it taught me how to prioritize work. It taught me how to, you know, how to take a phone call and, and, and talk professionally, how to approach a professional environment, how to conduct myself in meetings. So for three or four years as, as, a, as a kind of office worker, I actually worked at the one of the big exam boards in the UK. And again, even though it was, it was not a glamorous job, it gave me so many fundamentals that I have leaned on throughout my career. So it was only a short space of time, but by about 24, 25, I could really function, I think, in a professional environment. So when I got into teacher training, and as a lot of your listeners will know, because I think most teacher training programs look quite similar, you did the lectures and the learning. And I was always, I was always, I always enjoyed, I enjoyed going back to university and and learning the practice and learning the theoretical. And then when we got into the practical, um, one school that I went to was, was, was fairly useless it, I didn't the teachers didn't want you there they they didn't really enjoy having the trainees so I actually just put my head down and for that couple of months just did all the work that I needed to do <laughs> and with it was a fairly unfriendly environment but the second placement I got in the practical in the practical element was amazing and I had a really good mentor there and she really helped mold me as an educator, gave me great practical tips, how to run a classroom, how not to run a classroom, do's and don'ts. And I left that experience kind of in the April of that teacher training year in a really nice position. And what was kind of tragic was a lot of the people who had gone into the teacher training program had had really tough, really tough experiences in both, in both practicums. You know, they were, they were not welcomed. Um, kids were unruly they were not really helped in terms because it's one thing doing the theoretical as, as you know Matthew but it's another thing doing it <laughs> when you're studying in front of, and I remember my first lesson as a teacher trainee and I was terrified I was like what the hell do I do in front of 30 young people you stand up and you try have I said the right thing have I not said the right thing so I had a really good mentor in, in that second practicum and that was 
that really pushed me, I think, into then a really good job at, um, at a school in Manchester where I think I, I got a lot of the skills. For seven years, I really built a lot of the classroom skills that are needed mm. um, to be a, a, a good educator. And then, yeah, the job at Think came up and it was a huge risk at the time because you're leaving behind a secure contract. You're leaving, you're le leaving. I was leaving a very good college, but it was really a job that I, I'd convinced myself would never come around again. It was a job, I think global school, this traveling school, the visits three to four countries at the time it was three countries every year. And I just looked at the job description. I said, I, I go for this and I come back you know, in a year's time with my tail between my legs and it would have been an utter failure or it goes well and we really have a shot at doing some good within the education system. And 10 wow. years later, 11 years later, I'm still here. And um, so I think in answer to your question, big moments for me was having a great mentor when I started out in terms of um, the head of department that really looked after me on that practicum and then taking the risk of Think Global School and getting out into international education mm. when I did, yeah. which was around 2012, 2013. And what were some of the things that your mentor did to help stretch you and to help uh, empower you? Um, and how do you think that has impacted what you do in your current role? I think just um, enjoy you being there, which I think it's so basic, but some of the work we're doing now with the, the studio is, is trying to work with universities um, to take a kind of deep dive into, because uh, it's so important, important when people come into our profession, do we welcome them? Do we train them well? Um, and that was, it was just that basic thing of she actually liked having us around and we were utilized and we weren't just there to make the season coffees. We actually were doing real work and, teaching real lessons she allowed us to take some risks within that um three three to four month experience we taught some lessons we did some things she wasn't you know much like what we do now as a school regarding our project-based learning mentality she actually lets us take risks and fail and then we as young educators learned from that so it was really that simple it was being welcoming it was being friendly it was being open um it was allow it was allowing us to take some risks and fail and the individuals and that was game-changing it was really was game-changing for us for, for those of us who attended that school particularly and then when we heard the horror stories about other schools where you know people weren't welcomed it really and that's always that has always niggled me throughout my career and that's why I think I'm passionate now at giving something back and doing something with the universities in terms of young teachers and and people training to join us in this profession we have to do it better and and I think there's a lot of scope and a lot of work to be done to make the onboarding of new teachers way more dynamic and fun and interesting and, and friendly. And just because yeah. staff rooms, I'm telling you right now, staff rooms for new educators are on the whole, not friendly places. They're not, um, they're very clicky. Um, yeah, so if you've got a good, if you've got a good staff room environment, we just, we, on our own podcast, we, we had a, a chat with a school leader from the U S and, you know, his vision was to in, in, encapsulate the whole school as a staff room. The whole premises should be a staff room. You shouldn't have this little room where you hide away and, you know, <laughs> and I, so I think regarding my, my journey, those were the things that mentor really was welcoming. It, and it was that simple. I don't think solutions need to be complex all the time. Yeah. I love that idea um, about the whole school being the staff room. I think that's really interesting because I remember even as a student in, long road primary school in, in, Not in Nottingham in England, walking up to the staff room and gingerly knocking on the door and it being absolutely terrifying. And also yeah. as an educator, um, I've had the privilege of working in a number of different schools, but each time that first day walking into a staff room is terrifying because you don't know what to do. You don't know where to sit. You don't know who's mugs who or where Janice, yeah. whatever. Like it's, it's really... It's really confronting. So I, I really love that idea. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. And I would say for any, any, any principals or heads of department listening to your podcast, Matthew, you know, go into the staff room and have an honest reflect, do an honest reflection. If I was new to this organization, would I be comfortable um, coming in here? Do, would I feel welcomed? 
Yeah. And I, I, th I think it's crucial. So I, I, I do think we have, there's a lot of work to do in and around education. But I think the onboarding and the training is, is a really, for me, it's, it's, it's very much a low hanging fruit and we, we, yeah. we can fix, we can fix this and we can make it, we can make the onboarding way more dynamic than it is now. And yeah, um, yeah that's what some of our work is very passionately geared towards that. Fantastic. I, I have the privilege of working in a, um, a just a wonderful, wonderful school. And I uh, remember um, on my first day um, getting a, essentially a show bag uh, full of goodies and um, school branded mugs and stationery. And it was just these little, I felt like I was at the Easter show in Australia. We have this thing mm. where we get show bags from the Easter show. And I felt so much a part of it. And it's all of these little things. Like when you're walking into a staff room and you've got a school branded cup or you've got a lanyard, it just says these little tiny things that matter so much um, say that you are, that you belong there. And I don't know, I never really thought about it until you'd mentioned that. So yeah, I really appreciate you. Yeah. Being, and a lot more work needs to be done on that onboarding process. I know it's so much more than that, but it's those little things I think that really made a difference. Um, but uh, Russell, so what does, what do you, what does your day look like now? Um, I mean, it seems like you've got a lot of things on. I mean, you mentioned you were, um, your school, uh, the school that you uh, are involved in, I think global is all over the world. So what, what is your life like now? It seems very different to, uh, um, to that graduate teacher. Ten yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for sure. I, well, I had a life. April, May this year that radically changed as we went into June, July. So my life before June the 1st hit was I was principal director of, of Think Global School. Yeah. Um, we have a leadership team of three of us. It's a very flat leadership team. I was in, in charge of the cohort two. We actually have two schools that travel the world. And in the Changemaker program, we attend four, four countries each cohort has 30 students selected from a very wide range, diverse group of applicants. And these students travel the world learning about different cultures, different languages, different histories, different political systems, and through a completely project-based learning mm. teaching methodology, which the Changemaker program is, the TGS students really do embark on a portfolio-driven learning journey we are very anti-exam we're anti putting the students in age groups unless it's absolutely necessary one example of an absolutely necessary might be university preparation then obviously mm -hmm. that is that is relevant to those students who are leaving the following year who are usually 18 so they would be in an age group but all all else we try and really mix the students so the grade 10s would be in a full-on project with the grade 12s learning being mentored our assessment model is driven through the, the process portfolio, which are very detailed um, documents. Think think like an architect, for example. Yeah. And that is, is, is how we assess our students. We do not believe that two hours in June should encapture the the life of a student's learning journey. We just we just completely anti that and we we we're fighting hard to to you know to, to have our voice heard that we're very much anti this system. So my life was really running that and then, um, you know, as you get older, the travel for 10 years kind of takes its toll, even though it paused for a little bit in the pandemic. And we were very lucky to, and, and very privileged to get some funding to launch the Think Learning Studio, which I now am managing director of. And the goal there is really to help teachers and educators take the first step on the journey towards a more project-based, agile learning, challenge-based mindset. So our discovery course that we built will we we deliver to educators, and it just helps them take that first couple of steps into the world from the world of traditional into more Amazing. project challenge based. Yeah, and then we scale up. So our discovery course is the is the kind of kickoff, and then educators move into Odyssey and then Deep Dive. Deep Dive, they once they graduate that they become part of our ecosystem, and then can help us deliver trainings. We also offer consultations. Um, we just finished, um, one of my team, uh, Christian Long, just finished a really cool strategic um, project with Mount Vernon School in the US. Really cool school out there led by a guy called Brett Jacobson, who's, who's a really great leader. And yeah, we're embarking on um, 
a summit in Hakuba, Japan, March next year, where we're going to invite some of the leading um, schools, let's just say schools that do it differently wow. to Hakuba, Japan. And we're going to have between 15 and 20 schools together and really try mm -hmm. and form a, a collective voice about, you know, because we've always, we've always been very siloed, whether I think of Think Global, Green School, School of Humanity here in Dubai, who I, you know, I've got to know their, their leaders very well over the years. And rather than uh, schools that are competing against each other, we have to begin to create a fellowship of schools yeah. that are really trying to do things different. So that's our goal with the Hakuba Summit in 2023. Hakuba is about two hours from Tokyo in Japan. So we're going to gather school leaders together and the output is really unknown at this point, to be honest, we're, we're open to suggestions, um, but we're really going to try and at the very base level, create a fellowship of schools that just want to do things different. Amazing. Um, Russell, I have so many questions um, <laughs> and um, each one I'm sure could be a podcast episode in itself. And so there are by no means we'll be able to get through all of these questions because my mind is spinning um, and it's really refreshing to hear you speak about ways to do schools differently. And I just wanted to take you back. Um, when you say a school that travels the world, um, mm -hmm. what do you actually mean by that? And how do you how do you practically do that? I know in Australia, it's really difficult to take kids on an excursion because of the risks. So how on earth are you traveling the world with a bunch of students creating these meaningful learning opportunities? Because that to me sounds wonderful, but it sounds like a lot of work. Oh, it's a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no getting around that. There's a lot of work. So I'll give you an example. So our, we have three cycles of countries. Let's just dip into cycle one, for example. So cycle one, is Botswana, India, Japan, and then Greece. And just to tell your viewers, Think Global School, we always finish in Greece. Term four, April, May is always Greece. And we bring the two different schools together. And then we have a community term. So we have two schools traveling the world. So if you are part of, let's say, cohort one, and cohort one are in cycle one of the three years of countries, they will visit Botswana, India, Japan, and Greece. So we, re re we redesigned the school calendar. We felt the summer was just too long, no need to have 10 weeks or however long it is. So we cut that summer period down and added those weeks into the October break. What that does, it gives you then four equal blocks. Those blocks are eight weeks and then five weeks off. So the students, for example, let's say it's Botswana and we're starting in July. The students will do one week of on online learning so we've always done online learning. So the pivot in the pandemic for TGS was not that. It was drastic, but it wasn't as drastic because for four years we'd done online learning and, and the staff and the, 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 the community were, were geared towards that. So we do one, one week of online learning, which is where you do a lot of your content-driven stuff. The students research the country. They get ready for their modules that they'll embark on in that country. And then they'll land in the country and do seven weeks as, as a team. So... 30 students land. Each cohort has roughly 11 staff, six to seven educators, a principal, a psychologist, logistics director, and a media specialist. Those staff are then construct the experience of the term and they'll do night duty because we, we obviously the, the students are in, in dorms. So two staff are always on duty every evening. So the students then embark over them seven weeks on various pillars of education. So one of those pillars is the, the teacher-led module. This is where we prep the students for project-based learning and we scaffold up. So the teachers, the educators, as we call them, will design the experience, but the students still have voice and choice within that experience. So for example, the products will largely always differ per student. We don't, we don't have any expectations usually on what the product needs to be. So the teacher-led module that will run for seven weeks, Week seven, there'll be a showcase, public facing showcase, where the students will, will show the community they've just been in, whether that be in Botswana, whether it be in India, the work they've done. The students will also do personal projects. Now that can be seven weeks, it can be three weeks, it can be six months. That is completely on the students. And that is done simultaneously with the teacher-led modules that are going on. And we have space in the timetable for that to happen. So the students can do anything there. You know, one student, one, it was fascinated with the circus. So they, they 
started to investigate, well, what is a circus? Now, so in the tradition, and this is a really cool story, actually, Matthew, because this student was kind of ridiculed in her previous school where she was. And then in this experience, she ends up at a performing arts wow. school in Paris. So her modules that she'd constructed, the fascination with the circus actually led wow. to an amazing university offer somewhere down the road. And I'm convinced in a traditional system, she would not have been allowed to thrive as she, as she did in a project-based, challenge-based wow. environment. Yeah. So you've got the you've got the teach like modules, you've got the students constructing simultaneously passion projects. Then other pillars are things like our wellness program, Inside Out, where we treat where obviously post-pandemic lot of heavy lifting there with the students coming out of the pandemic and uh, we've got our college prep course prepping those things especially for the next step onto university and then we have a capstone course which is focused on academic writing research methods you know so that that is that is linked that's the most traditional course traditional course that we teach so the timetable is constructed really around those pillars and then if the students want to do the AP exams, they can do. Now, the reason we do that, we don't teach it though. The students learn and construct that in their own time. And we might mentor them to the, off on the side as, as subject specialists. So what happens there is students from Germany, Vietnam, who have more pressure for, for, as a traditional system, especially the German, the German students, they can then attend TGS because they can get not just the TGS diploma, but they can get an AP diploma as well. So that then stops us um, denying certain countries mm. coming to an experience in the school. I'd say about 30%, 40% of students decide to do the AP. A student from Mexico, for example, no interest, doesn't need it, won't touch it. They'll just yeah. do the project-based learning. Wow. Once again, uh, Russell, there's, there's, there's so <laughs> much in that, um, and we will have to do around two three or four i think because it's, there's just some <laughs> it's so refreshing to hear this I, i'm just curious um what how do you define what a school is well i i think we've definitely we, we've for many decades we've had a vision that it's yeah. it's a building people turn up at 9 a.m or whatever time they do x amount of lessons they go home, they do a bit of homework. And then in May, June, they do a few exams, maybe a bit of coursework if they're lucky. And then, then you know, they go on to the next stage. And I think that has been the model for, mm. you know, for, for as long as we can remember, certainly the model that I experienced. I think what's happening now is we, the, in the reimagining of schools, we're not just reimagining the spaces and the, the physical being of schools, which are, be getting, which are getting a lot more dynamic. Um, we, we just had a, a fascinating podcast ourselves with Roseanne Bosch from Denmark, who, who her work is completely around the redesign of schools and the building. Away from that, we're also now looking at schools as spaces for wellness, for community. Um, so I think we are real, and, and the movement is gathering pace for sure. It's, it's absolutely gathering, gathering more pace than I can ever remember. So the purpose of school, I think now is becoming a lot more dynamic and it's it's and it's happening very fast and i think schools are going to let be left behind fairly quickly if they stay in that traditional box of, of mm. students just just turning up and you know cranking out three like three a levels for example in, in, in the english system at the end of two years that, that's just not going to fly i don't think in the next five to ten years schools are going to need to offer more interesting yeah it's um it's really interesting, like I said, incredibly refreshing to hear you talk about um, questioning some of those things that are uh, have been perceived for, for many hundreds of years as unquestionable when it comes to schools and the roles of schools and, and, and what that what that involves. Um, what would you say to someone that says that students are, uh, sorry, at the end of the day, if students wish to pursue a university um, education and get accepted into university, um, do you buy the uh, criticism that some students would be disadvantaged with a, a less traditional model of education or what would your response to that be? I'm not saying I no. necessarily agree with that. I'm just, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, because we, we, we've proven that's not the case. I mean, that was the that was the stick used to beat us when we launched Changemaker. And we were very early movers when we launched Changemaker. Six, you know, six years ago, we sent the design team out to, to build what is now in existence. 
and we were called crazy. You know, why would you leave an IB program to create your own system? We had an amazing board um, accreditors that, that that supported us, um, and I'll always say, without our accreditation body, they we could not have done what we did, and they were in, immensely supportive of of what we did. Um, but no, we we are proving that students can get our students get into university. <laughs> you know, our students do a project-based learning, um, two or three-year experience, depending on when they enter, and they get into university. Now, what we've seen, interestingly, is students become a lot more. I think they're becoming they're becoming consumers, uh, and and in that, what I mean is, our students are beginning to decide and select universities. A that are are way more affordable than past years, where I think the debt was just something you put off and I'll deal with it when I'm 30. Our students are now at TGS really looking at the finances and saying, okay, do I really want to go to a US institution and be saddled with X amount of debt? Or we are seeing a big move towards the, the Netherlands, Amsterdam, Maastricht, you know, The Hague, you know, the, these type of areas in the Netherlands. Our, our students are looking at, at these types of universities because they're great institutions and that you're not saddled with the debt. Yeah. So wow. they're becoming, they're becoming very kind of streetwise in their selection. And our students are also looking at delivery methods. So if I'm just going to be sat in a lecture hall for three years, our students are, are beginning to migrate away from that model and ask the universities more deeper questions on, you know, how do you teach? You know, how often will I be in a seminar? You know, how, you know, is it just lecture based? Uh, so our students are beginning to ask questions that that my generation just never did. Wow. And it seems so much more empowering as students um, because they're the ones with the answers. They're the ones that uh, essentially are going to benefit or, or not from this traditional education system and for them to be able to be empowered to ask those questions um, I think is really important and I think as well like it would do so much in terms of um, uh, sort of initiating change at the university level because universities need to be competitive and they need to be places that are um, more equitable and also to be able to offer um, uh, incredible courses and so I love that I love that idea of a um, essentially an 18 year old student putting a university on trial uh, to ask them yeah. how they're going to benefit them as opposed to you yeah. get what you get. Um, I think that's really important. And Russell, um, so what does success look like for Think, Think Global? And um, how do we, or should we even be assessing students to try and look at some of their competencies? Well, I think students thrive in post exit in our institution you know mm. now if i look at our alumni network you know are they thriving are they competent are they enjoying the next are they enjoying the next next step in the journey whatever that step is and are they thriving and as a whole i really think that the, the tgs alumni are doing really well out there and i think that speaks yeah. volumes for, for giving and i think you know as, you know, as, as a pod, as a podcast idea, even, you know, grabbing some of these students who've gone through a very different Great education process and then saying, okay, when you got to university, how was it? Because what we're hearing is our students are saying, well, year one was kind of a breeze. Like we were, we, we've spent two years managed because our students manage their own finances. Our students manage their own learning. Our students are responsible for their own rubrics and assessment tools. They design their own. So when they get to uni, what they're they're ready yeah they're, they're very right. much ready they're almost wow. they're almost less they almost certainly got less choice than they had in the high school and that is an adaptation that we've got to prep them for yeah, wow. so our students are doing really well out there and i i would encourage anyone who is thinking of a different model of education and might be put off by your your, your exact question of well are we damaging students by not giving them a, a test and release <laughs> kind of education? Just speak to the TGS alumni. They're out there and they'll, they'll give you that, yeah. that orientation of, of, of the experience. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, I don't think you are damaging them. I think it's just an interesting, uh, oh, uh, and yeah. I think there would be, I mean, I know in the industry that I work in, it's very traditional. It's very top down. It's very regulated. It's very prescribed. Um, and so I do want, I understand how difficult it is just to change the furniture in a classroom, let alone to reinvent education. And I think it is incredibly 
wonderful and inspiring to see the, the, the work that you guys are doing. Um, and it is, this is the thing, like there are people that identify issues in their system and do nothing about it. And then there are people that identify issues and then figure out a way forward. And it's something which I think you guys have done incredibly well. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's hugely, um, it's hugely inspiring. And uh, Russell, I was just wondering, um, you mentioned you are, um, you, you've now moved into a, a bit of a different focus with um, think, uh, the Think Learning Studio. What, what does that involve? And what, what, what are some of your hopes for that project? Yeah, I, I really hope we can help educators, like I said before, take that first step into, because we, we were not trained to do this, if, we, if we're honest. We were trained, the majority of us who are in the profession right now, to teach in a siloed capacity, mm. a very ring-fenced subject area. And we were kind of trained that those test scores were kind of the, the big marker of whether we were doing a good or bad job. And I would hope that... that as a studio, we were helping, we were helping our fellow professionals realize that the job is so much more than that. And I, I'll be honest, when we transitioned over from IB to Changemaker, I was resistant. I had never team team tour like this before. I had never, you know, cross um, taught projects that were interdisciplinary, working with the economics teacher or the anthropology teacher and mixing and matching methods and content and ideas and but I, I couldn't go back now I couldn't go back you know, going back to the traditional system now would 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 would, would crush me I, I I just couldn't do it now I've seen the enjoyment that our students experience through through leading their own learning now I see the staff that are completely liberated designing new module ideas every eight to 10 weeks, you know, mm -hmm. constantly coming up. Cause you know, when I was an IB teacher, ch changing content was like moving the Titanic. Yeah. It was like, Oh my God, you know, you can't, ch we've taught this content for 20 years. How dare, you know, you can't, you know, teaching a little, I remember deviating from the curriculum a, a little when I was an A-level teacher and you were like taking the biggest risk. You were like, Oh my God. Yeah. And I just wanted to maybe open up a few new avenues of inquiry as a historian but you were taking the biggest risk. You can't deviate from content. And then now our students, our teachers, our educators are constantly, constantly redesigning modules and, and, and ideas. Every Because we're going back to India now for like the third time, I think, as a, as a TGS entity. And our teachers are looking at the modules, refining them, changing them. And then the students are always delivering different outcomes. So the outcome of this year will look completely different from, from a year ago. Wow. And once again, there's there's so much in that. I, I did just want to uh, touch briefly on your views on age-based cohorts and why you think we still continue to um, group students um, chronologically as opposed to ability. How have you, um, as an organisation, overcome some of those challenges? Yeah, I mean, and and, and I get there's, there's 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 a maturity question, there's a safeguarding at times yeah. question. There's 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 all there's all types of things we can throw into the mix to not do this but i think you can very easily for example groups grades seven eight and nine you can very easily group we've proven it 10 11 and 12 and i've not seen i've really seen no in terms of our teach-led modules where they're all all the students are mixed together i've seen virtually no negatives i've seen the grade tens having to raise their game very quickly to meet the demands of the grade 12s i've seen the grade 12s become great mentors for the grade tens i've seen that maturity academic matur i mean you don't want to necessarily you want you want children to be children you want them to play and have fun but in terms of the academic maturity and the outcomes the the acceleration towards great learning and great showcases has been has been insane. We've seen we've seen it on the ground year after year. So why do we persist with age-based cohorts? Um, well, I think the the content kind of demands that. You know, if you're following a very structured curriculum, yeah, IB history, grade eleven, I taught this, grade twelve, I taught this. They're your options. So you you are you are ring fenced by yeah. the demands of the curriculum, and we don't have that. Which when when you think about it is is ridiculous. Um, like to assume that the only thing in common are a student's chronological age and that everybody moves through a set of learning, a set of skills and competencies at the same level is 
um, is insanity. I remember when I was working as and the first time I, I guess I got this revelation is probably late in my career, but I was working as an AALD um, teaching specialist and I had students in kindergarten, year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, year six, all together in one classroom learning. And it was a, it, for me, it was just a reminder that students do not progress the same in all areas. And if we are no. moving them purely chronologically, then we're, we're missing something here. And for me, I saw the incredible benefits of having this, the diversity, the, the age diversity within a classroom. And why can't you extend that uh, more broadly in schools? I think it's a really important question. Yeah, well, the, the system, the system is very good at repelling innovation. It's very, it's the, the system is very resistant to change and it's, it's, and that's obvious, you know, it, it's obvious. And there, there's some benefits in that. So you don't get teachers going rogue. You know where every student is roughly, you know, within the, within the, the matrix of the, of, of the content of the curriculum. So, so for educational leaders, there's benefits that the system doesn't allow innovation and change, but for the kids, it's, as you say, Matthew, it, it's, it's stifling. Yeah. And there are, there are ways around it. And I'll give you an example. What we did, we, when we, abolished grading a b c d one to seven it was again and as i said at the start of the podcast these changes do not have to be huge some of the smallest most obvious changes we we, we made at think global was some of gave us some of the best results so for example removing the grading a b c d and changing it to mm. you know bloom's taxonomy novice specialist and mastery was game-changing because we're all novice at something, you know, if I mean, if, if me, if, if me and you go off to yoga class right now, I don't know how good you are at yoga, but the idea is that, Not that maybe good. one of us is, yeah. So one of us might be novice. One of us might be bordering specialist. I've been doing it a little, a little while, but I was definitely the worst in the room for a good year. And that was, you know, that was refreshing. Wow. You know, I'm not chasing an A because as a cricket player, as a sportsman, you're not an A in anything. Like you, you, you might, become competent, which is a specialist, you might begin training others or developing, you know, if you watch some of the great batsmen, you know, some like a Kevin Peterson who created his own style of batting, you move into mastery. But these are the skills. But at no point do you lose faith yeah. like you do from being saying, oh, Matthew, you, you, you did this piece of work. You're now, you're, you're, that's an E. When in fact, you're a novice. You're just learning. You're, you're developing. And once we got rid of those, that grading system, oh, wow. you saw the student's mindset completely shift. Yeah, when you tackled this area of science, you are a novice right now. You, you don't quite know enough. You're not quite evaluating or analyzing as you need to. But guess what? You keep doing it, you will move up that scale. Yeah. And also, like, nor should you be expected to be. I mean, there are like, if you want to know how to write a great sentence, like, I'm your man, but there's so many things that I don't know how to do. And there's so many things that we are all ignorant about. And so I think it's really nice to remove that stigma of incompetence and say, you know what, like you're just learning. And I've, I've seen how demoralizing it can be for students when they get an E or when they get a D. Yeah. And even how with, with parents, how sort of culturally constructed that is, especially when you're coming from some countries where A is the expectation but it's yeah. it's really really interesting and it raises so many questions and i was just wondering if you wouldn't mind um talking a little bit about trust because it sounds like there is an immense amount of trust within yeah. the organization for teachers to be experts and i know this is a generalization but i wonder what your thoughts are on sort of the over prescription of content um and if you think that represents maybe a lack of trust in in the profession well the, it's one of the biggest changes we've seen in the last 20 years is the issue. And I don't think we talk about it enough, to be mm. honest, is, is the changes around content. I mean, for so many years as educators, we were deliverers of content. You know, you, we, we, we gave the content, the students memorized it, learned it, maybe analyzed a little, regurgitate that on an exam. With the birth of the internet, and then as we move in now into kind of Web 3.0, Web 4.0, Metaverse, all completely, you know, decentralizing knowledge on the blockchain. We are moving into an age uh, that has left schools woefully behind and underprepared. And content now, these students, these young people 
can grasp content from so many different sources. Yeah. Probably more than most educators and most of us can ever expect. Yeah. So our young people can grab content for almost anywhere. So if that's the case, why would our sole goal remain delivering content? It seems you're just doubling down. Well, you're also and not that... going to win with it. You're never going to see success. No, no. way smarter than both of us, you know? So It is, it yeah. is. And not just that, not just that. The, the school model, our students now will, will have, they'll have, they'll have a phone, They'll have the computer. They'll maybe have an iPad. They'll be getting sources of content and information for maybe three to four simultaneous mm. devices or sources. You go into school, you're focusing on the teacher. Usually, phones are banned. You're fo- you're focused on one entity, one entity who's delivering content at a very slow pedestrian rate. So, it's 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 insane. So, of course, school then has to move into a model where the skill moves away not saying that content can't be delivered it can but that's not your sole focus anymore your focus has to become around empathy grits skills of analyzation and evaluation um reimagining the future skills around foresight and 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 futurism you know so school has to change its core model because delivering content no wonder no wonder students across australia england us you know, parts of Asia, you know, South America are just switching off because yeah. it's, 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 it's insane. Why would we just sit here and give yeah. them content? Yeah. And, and it, it reminds, no it reminds me so much about the quote from Albert, Albert Einstein. He talks about the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, over. Again and expecting different results. And I feel like we're at a point where um, we know better and we need to do better because Look, personally, my daughter's starting kindergarten next year. Um, and all of a sudden this has, I've always been incredibly passionate about what we teach in schools, but now it's become a little bit more personal um, because she is going into a system which uh, needs to change. And so it's, it, it really makes you think about um, why are we doing what we're doing? If we know it doesn't work, why are we continuing to do it? And my only answer can be is there is a lack of trust um, and also, it's just easy to do what we've already, always done. But still, that's not good enough anymore. You, no, you it's not. Keep, it's you not. can't keep hiding behind that just because we've always done it. And so how do we even begin? Obviously, you're talking from a, a system which is incredibly, um, uh, very, very different to mine. But how do we even begin to have those conversations to begin to, to, to steer this incredibly large vessel in the right direction? Because we need to do something. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen some uh, things that are happening. So some of the great things I've seen is um, schools that really want to follow a project or challenge-based learning um, approach will mm. launch a school within a school. So they'll dedicate, and we can't, no, schools are not going to do what TGS did, which was 100% overhaul. So I think school within a school where maybe 20% of the timetable is dedicated to a, a cross-curriculum interdisciplinary project is a, is a start. It's a, it's a kickoff, and that's just, that that's good. Um, I would like to see. So that's one. I would like to see a halt of the mass um, exportation of traditional schools. We see it in Dubai. You know the idea that English schools are popping up everywhere, and they all claim to be dynamic and full of student voice and choice, but that you know. They're, they're, they're an a, yeah, they're an A-level school. You know, how dynamic are you really going to be when you're just following GCSEs and A-level? So I would like to see where schools are beginning to export their brand. I think a simple change we could make, whether you're in somewhere like the UAE, Singapore, Saudi, a lot of new schools are emerging in Saudi, even in new schools starting up in Australia, for example, yeah. 20% of your curriculum should be something different. You know, we actually force schools that are, emerging to actually do something different so if i if i would say one policy change we could make here in the uae if you're building a school in dubai i want to see 20 or 25 percent of your approach being truly dynamic we're not going to let you just to build more schools that are a level and gcc we've got we now we've now got hundreds of those you have to present something that is unique and offers something around the local community more locally driven and i think that might be the case um to stop this mass yeah exporting 
of the A-level and IB system. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that all that is bad. You can still have a predominantly A-level IB system, but if you're going to, you know, what, you know, what new things are you doing? Are you, are, you know, what, what new approach, you know, if it's a school within a school, if something that maybe a sustainability or a green program, green school Bali, you know, they've done this for years, you know, um, if it's a futures facing program or a full site program, great. You know, that's all we're asking, but just present something different. This, this constant cookie cutter of schools just being rolled out, you know, a hundred times over, that's not going to get us the change. And the more of these schools that get implanted in all these different cities, the harder it will be to turn the Titanic. Yeah. So I think there should be an expert. I think emerging nations need to be very careful here that we're exporting a model to them from the British system, for example, that isn't working inside Britain. Schools, exactly. school, you know, students inside the UK are switching off in record numbers. You know, go to the US, homeschooling is, the numbers are phenomenal in terms of how many people are now homeschooling. So parents and students are switching off and turning away from this traditional model. Yeah. So why would you keep exporting it to others without refining it somewhat? So what do you think... Um... Once again, my mind is spinning. Um, what do you think we need to get rid of then? I mean, you mentioned um, 20% new content slash curriculum, but at the moment there is too much to get through. So what are some of the yeah. what are some of the questions you think we need to have in terms of evaluating what we're teaching and if it's still useful? Because I don't I don't have time to get through what I need to. I need to try and find creative ways to get through mandatory content. So how do we begin to evaluate what we're teaching in a way that we can eliminate some things well we need help i mean the, the schools can't do it individually so you're going to have to have either states as you do in australia or a centralized system like the uk you, you need policy makers to shift and help make the shift to encourage because then you know if, if top down it said okay there needs to be a mass reduction of content you know, this idea of students in the UK system chasing 15 A's at GCSE is insane. It's, it's, it's just crazy. So I think there has to be real policy shifts, not tinkering anymore, actual real change, um, giving, but trusting schools and educators to, to create more dynamic mm -hmm. curriculum. Um, you know, one, one, what, and I, I fear what will happen is we will w end up waiting for policymakers and exam boards to make the change, and then we'll slowly follow. And then there'll be this kind of muted celebration that we finally did a, did something. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. DIB have launched the career-related programs. That has potential. You know, the, the career-related program does have potential. The problem is it's probably going to be put into the bucket of vacational qualifications that people don't take as seriously as the diploma or as A-levels. And therefore, we will start internal, internally rubbishing it and making it second fiddle to the diploma. But actually, the CP program, where you just take a couple of subjects, then you have all these hours free to do new, exciting, creative things, that's a real practical step in the right direction that the mm -hmm. IB have made. So that's, that's, that's hopeful. Yeah. Um, I know that Cambridge have launched a few new new approaches um, as well. So I think, sadly, I think we'll end up having to wait for the exam boards and the system to allow us to shift before we shift. But that doesn't mean we can't put pressure on policymakers in the, mean in the meantime. And part of what we're trying to do at the studio, as I was telling you off air, was to bring together like-minded schools to actually create a fellowship of schools that are doing it differently and maybe then present a white paper or an initiative to a government body that maybe accepts it and then allows a shift. And then if a couple shift, maybe more will follow. But yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's so important. And I think change is annoyingly slow. Um, but also we can't um, put off responsibility onto other people. We need to be making those changes, I think, at the at the school level, which is really important. And so let's imagine, uh, Russell, in closing, because I, I do want to be respectful of your time. I'm, a, I'm aware that you've got a whole day ahead of you. Um, <laughs> but um, if we were sitting down having a coffee and I was, I was, I just graduated from university and I was about to step into the classroom, um, what would be a piece of advice that you would give to me as I embark on my exciting and diverse career in education? <laughs> Wow. Um, I would say 
get out there, do as much professional development as you can, because the system you've probably just exited probably didn't prepare you for the way education will go in the next 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. The advice I give all my staff is create a network, whether that be on LinkedIn or other forum, create a network of like-minded people um, and not like-minded people, because that's also helpful to see what the other side is saying. But I think create a network, get out there, do some speaking, do some, you know, get out in front of other educators, begin sharing your ideas, publish some articles. And, you know, I, I would say, yeah, it's surprising how few educators actually do have a, a, a presence. And that's fine. But as a young educator, at least have that in the back of your mind, you yeah. know, build a network of professionals that can help you, that can support you. You can share ideas with. There's tons, there's tons of places now. Yeah. Yeah. Free free of charge Absolutely. as well that you can do. So I would say that would be my biggest advice, create a network and get out and really do as much PD professional development as your school allows to really open your eyes to all these different styles of, of teaching and learning, which are not necessarily being taught on, at the university level as you exit the training programs. Amazing. And if I was, if we were to have the same cup of coffee, um, but I was about to step into a school principalship role. What advice would you give me as I begin to embark on an uncertain future in education? Get to know, get to know your staff and be visible. Yeah. You know, so many um, heads I've seen over the years, maybe start out with really good intentions, but they get lost in the emails and they get lost in their own office, <laughs> almost becomes Narnia. You, you, you go through that door and you kind of get lost in your office, you know, get out there, meet your teachers, meet your students, be visible. And I think if you're visible and you show that leadership, great things can come from that. But just being visible is so important. Amazing. And uh, second, uh, second last question um, of our interview. Um, what is something that you, something specifically, sorry, let me rephrase that. What is a specific problem that you are trying to resolve, trying to solve at the moment? Well, there's there's a lot, <laughs> but um, one one specific problem is what we've talked about today, which is really getting conversations going with um, people who are running the university level program for new teachers and really trying to reform that a little uh, regarding, and that's the low hanging fruit there is just by running maybe even just by teaching new teachers what project-based, challenge-based learning could yeah. be and is, a yeah. couple of workshops would be a start. We're not talking about scrapping whole programs here, but just launching a couple of workshops within the teaching training experience to show new educators there's it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a, just a stand-and-deliver system. Some of us out there are doing this differently, and this is how we're doing it. And that might just open their eyes to... Amazing. Numerous possibilities that are going to emerge in the next 10, 20 years for schools like ours, for example. Because when I when I used to employ teachers, I got lucky sometimes. Some of them did have experience teaching in different ways, but other times they didn't, and we had to train up from scratch almost. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And finally, where can uh, people find out more about you and the amazing work that you're involved in? So yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Russell J. Cayley, and then the studio has its own website, which is www.thinklearningstudio.org. And then if you are a young person interested in the school, it's and the, the travel element and join, or, or potentially working at the school, it's www.tgs.org. Fantastic. I'll uh, put all of those links uh, in the show notes. But um, Russell, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, it is incredibly refreshing and also really challenging to hear some of the amazing work that you're involved in. And um, it, it's really inspiring to see people making a real difference in this space. So uh, thank you for all of the work that you're doing um, to, to uh, move um, success forward for our students. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. It's great joining you today. Cheers.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we can continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.